How can we help street homeless New Yorkers become stably housed? Let's learn together. Welcome. I'm Samantha Deliberti, founder of the social impact hub Orange You Going, and this is Progress Through Purpose. Progress Through Purpose helps you discover issues you're passionate about, like the environment, social equality, affordable housing, and more, and makes it easy for you to affect change while connecting with like-minded New Yorkers in person. Learn from experts working on the vital issues impacting the largest city in the U.S. and hear the solutions they propose. Then meet us in person. Join the Og Squad, a community of changemakers who meet to affect change together. Build new friendships, expand your network, and advance your career through civic engagement, all while uplifting our city. Learn more about the movement at orangeyougoing.com. Hey, Og Squad. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we're joined by Amy Pospisil, Chief Operating Officer of the nonprofit Breaking Ground. Amy joined Breaking Ground in 2008 to develop and manage the organization's extensive street outreach programs for chronically homeless New Yorkers. Today, she's responsible for the operation of nearly 500 units of transitional housing, the Queen's Drop-In Center, nearly 5,000 units of permanent, supportive, and affordable housing, and a host of social service programs and more. Amy, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So can you start by sharing what's unique about Breaking Ground? What's your organization's mission and how do you set out to accomplish it? Sure. So Breaking Ground's mission is to strengthen individuals, families, and communities by developing and sustaining exceptional, supportive, and affordable housing, as well as programs for homeless and other vulnerable New Yorkers, which actually I think you know, the continuum that we offer from development and operation of permanent supportive and affordable housing, as well as the supportive services really offers a continuum of care that that is unique. And this continuum of services that we offer is rooted in harm reduction and housing first philosophies that help people escape the trauma and cycle of homelessness. Starting with our street to home outreach programs, which operate 24 seven in Brooklyn, Queens and Midtown Manhattan. We engage with people who are living unsheltered and not utilizing the traditional shelter system, and we connect them with transitional and permanent housing. Along the way, we also provide a full range of case management, behavioral health services, primary care, and more directly to people on the street where they're living. And core to our work is establishing a foundation of trust and rapport and eliminating as many barriers as possible to accessing housing. For many of the folks, Our safe haven transitional housing programs are an optional interim step while they continue their journey to permanent housing. And these low barrier alternatives to traditional shelter have robust on-site services and programming, three meals a day, and 24-7 security. People can access healthcare services there as well. And then at the other end of our continuum is our permanent supportive housing. And many of the people who move into our permanent supportive housing were first engaged by our very own street outreach programs and often spent time in our transitional housing. Each step of the way, breaking ground staff ensure that folks have a soft landing, which we find really to be very important, especially for people who have endured trauma and have been let down by systems throughout their life. And supportive housing is the gold standard and accepted solution to chronic homelessness. Simply put, it's affordable housing with wraparound services to support people as they move into permanent housing and throughout the duration of their tenancy. Services are optional because we firmly believe that that housing is where everything starts and we don't have the traditional prerequisites such as sobriety or treatment adherence. 
And we believe that safe, stable housing is the foundation necessary for other change to occur. In fact, 98% of people who exit homelessness and move into Breaking Ground's permanent supportive housing stay for the long term. Wow, that is a, a really big number. So I just want to kind of dive into a couple of the different things that you said. So first, maybe we could just start with what is the difference? And you touched on this a little bit, but if you could expand, that would be great. What is the difference between shelter service that is being offered by the government, by the city, and the housing services that you're offering? Sure. So safe haven transitional housing programs that are also funded by the city are lower threshold model of traditional shelter, meaning that they don't have, you know, some of the things that are more rigid about the traditional shelter system, such as a curfew. You don't have to go through a central intake. They're often smaller, and really the outreach programs in the city control the front door of the safe havens, meaning they directly refer in rather than having folks move through a series of, you know, a large assessment intake shelter and, you know, throughout the city. They're also really intentionally geographically located in areas where street homeless folks tend to be, because we know that folks who are living on the street tend not to want to relocate very far from where their street location is for a variety of reasons. So they're very, they're much smaller and they're geographically located in these really important areas. And so in terms of the population of folks who you're serving, is your organization focusing on the street homeless population specifically, as opposed to maybe families or somebody who was recently housed and lost their housing due to a medical need or something like that? Sure. Um, at Breaking Ground, we serve a number of vulnerable populations, but our main focus is on people who've been homeless for long periods and usually have a disabling condition. And these are folks who are often referred to as chronically homeless. And can you tell us a little bit more about this population? Because I do think that it is probably the population of homeless New Yorkers who fellow New Yorkers see, you know, on their way to work and that kind of thing. And it's speaking just from personal experience, it's hard to know what the right thing is to do. You want to help. But can you talk a little bit just about, you know, maybe some of the obviously anonymous way, sure. some of the folks who you're serving, you know, how did they get to this position? And then is there something that the average New Yorker should be doing or not doing when they see people in this position? Sure. So many of these folks are facing economic hardship, of course, but they also face a variety of other challenges to finding and maintaining affordable housing, including mental illness, substance use disorders, and chronic medical conditions. And due to these conditions, they often have a health status that would suggest that they're about two decades older than their chronological age, which puts them at risk, of course, of premature death. And on average, the people that we work with on the street have experienced homelessness for more than eight years. So at first, our work is often about getting people to trust us before we can even talk about housing. You know, if you've survived on the streets for eight years, you might think that you don't even need anybody's help. But we find that survival takes up so much of people's time and energy that finding more stable living situations is virtually impossible. So we're really there to walk each person through the process of getting off the streets and finding long-term stability. We're also seeing, especially, you know, throughout the past several years, we're seeing more folks who are aging. So in addition to folks who are experiencing medical conditions and life situations such that they're prematurely aging, they're also actually aging more. So we're seeing an older population on the street as well, which comes with some other, you know, special needs and services. 
And so what is the role of the average New Yorker? I mean, is there a hotline where we should be calling breaking ground if we see somebody? Should we be giving money or food to help? What would you advise the average New Yorker to do or not to do? Sure. You know, I always say giving money or giving food, it's a very personal choice. There are a lot of services and feeding programs, soup kitchens and other ways to access food services. And that's actually one of the services that we offer as well. We help connect people to available community resources, including food pantries, soup kitchens and other food feeding programs. Another way that we really suggest that, that folks get involved is by using the 311 system. So you can either call or use the 311 app to ask for mobile street outreach to visit the person that, that seems to be in need of services. And wherever you are in the city, an outreach team like Breaking Ground or one of the other city-funded partners is obligated to respond within an hour. And often we arrive much sooner than that. Oh, wow. I did not know that that service existed. And I didn't know that 311 had an app. So yes, <laughs> uh, very educational. Okay, that's really good to know. So can you talk a little bit, what are these outreach teams? What do they do? I guess just how do they function? And like, what are their special skills that makes them equipped to interface with these homeless New Yorkers? And you mentioned also that there's this need to build trust. How does that happen? Sure. You know, so our street outreach programs and teams are going out onto the street, engaging with people who are not otherwise engaged in services, right? And the services that we offer are completely optional. It's not illegal to be homeless in New York City. So our work really is about engaging people and earning that trust and rapport so that they trust us enough to connect them to other services. These are folks who have often been let down by so many systems throughout their life. They've experienced trauma both before their homeless episode or during, for sure. And so folks, you know, are not always going to be trusting immediately. And so we really spend a lot of time building that trust and rapport and weave in conversations related to housing and services all along the way. So the most important thing that we do at the very first is ask people what they want and what they need. And they might find that something, you know, who knows, maybe getting a pair of eyeglasses or getting their dental care taken care of might be more important to them in the moment than working on their housing. So we stay with that and we work with them exactly where they're at physically and also in that space of what they're ready to work on. And then we also gradually kind of talk to them about other things that are available. And we find that once we start, you know, to work through some of that, you know, that's really when we can move people along, you know, in the process. And of course, everybody's different. So there are absolutely folks that, you know, we establish that trust and rapport really early on and other folks it takes longer and it can kind of go back and forth. So the work that our outreach teams are doing is really about persistent engagement and not giving up. Even if the first interaction, somebody's not interested in working with us, we try and we try again in a really respectful but persistent way. And our team's include staff on the very front lines who are engaging with people 24-7 out on the street, as well as case management staff who are bringing an array of social services and case management services like benefits assistance and gaining their income and their identification, connecting them to mental health and primary care services, substance use services, if that's something that they want to work on, and kind of anything else along the way. And we also have licensed social workers in our program. And we bring psychiatry and street medicine services out to the street. Something you said really struck me, and I'm, I wanted to dive into it a little bit more, even though it's not exactly on topic. You said that it is not illegal to be homeless in New York City. And I guess my question is, is it illegal in other cities to be homeless? And is that something that 
is even a thing. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, other municipalities throughout the country have different local laws or different regulations that you know don't allow people to sleep in public spaces, for example. And so they criminalize certain homeless behavior. And in, in New York, that's not what we've done. So it's a really, you know, we find that the most helpful thing that we can do is, again, engage with people, earn that trust and rapport, and offer them an alternative that's attractive and available to them. So that safe haven model that I mentioned, you know, that didn't exist years ago. It's a model, I don't know, maybe over the last 15, really over the last like 15 years has really kind of blown up as a, as a gold standard model for transitional housing for chronic, chronically street homeless people. Because even in a city like New York, where we had a right to shelter, these folks weren't utilizing it because it wasn't something that worked for them. So we really believe that our job in the outreach programs is to find solutions that really, really work for street homeless people and then eliminate as many barriers as possible for them to access it. So can we dive in a little bit to the different definitions to make sure we're tracking? So we have, you've mentioned, and I'm going to probably forget some of them, but transitional housing, affordable housing, supportive housing, safe havens. I don't know if that's different in some way. And then right to shelter, which I'm assuming is through a government system, a government shelter. Can you just break down what those are? What are the differences? Sure. So the right to shelter in New York City, that really came out of a consent decree from the 80s where there was a suit brought against the city and they're required since then to provide shelter for everybody. Any person who is in need of a shelter bed, they have to provide that capacity. Legally, the city has to provide that capacity. We're one of the very few municipalities around the country that have that right to shelter. So we have a large shelter system in New York, and we have some centralized ways of accessing that. There's a main point of intake for single adult men, a main, you know, a couple of points of intake for single adult women, for adult families and families with children. It's kind of broken down into these different buckets. That traditional shelter system works for a lot of people. The folks that it doesn't work so well for are people who've been living on the street for a really long time, people that we're calling chronically street homeless people. And as I mentioned earlier, the folks that we're working with at Breaking Ground on the street have an average length of homelessness of about eight to eight and a half years. So those are the folks that we're talking about who are living on the street and not utilizing that traditional system. And the safe haven model of transitional housing is just an alternative to the traditional shelter. So it still is a type of shelter, but we call it safe haven transitional housing so that we distinguish it from the traditional shelter that many people know and folks on the street, many of them may have tried it over the years and, and it didn't work out for them. So we wanted to make sure that they understood as we're talking with folks on the street that this is a different model and an alternative for them. And so that model, that transitional shelter model, that is the one, for example, that doesn't have curfews and all of those different intake requirements? That's correct. Okay, that's helpful. And then so you offer that shelter system, but then you also offer supportive housing, permanent supportive housing. What is permanent supportive affordable housing? So what is your definition of affordable housing? Sure. There are a lot of ways to define affordable housing, but at its most basic, housing is affordable when after paying your rent or your mortgage every month, you have enough left over to take care of the rest of your basic needs. You can't afford healthy food, education, and healthcare if you can't afford the rent. And here in New York City, our housing crisis is such that 69% 
of extremely low income households. So for instance, a family of three, that's an income of about $36,000 a year or less, are paying more than half of their gross income towards rent. And this is known as severe rent burden. There are not enough units affordable to people who have incomes, but are making 30%, 40%, or even up to 60% of the median income. And this undersupply of affordable housing is the primary driver of homelessness here and across the country. This episode is brought to you by City and State Media, New York's premier outlet for New York politics and policy. Subscribe to the must-read daily newsletter, First Read, at cityandstateny.com. First Read is the quickest way to stay up to date on NY's biggest political and policy news. Always be in the know. Visit cityandstateny.com to learn more. So how do you get somebody who has been chronically homeless, usually I'm assuming, you know, unemployed, but correct me if I'm wrong on that assumption. How do you get somebody like that to a place where they're able to pay rent? And how long does something like that take? Sure. So certainly many of the folks that we're working with on the street have had histories of employment and, and other things. They People don't become street homeless overnight. It's usually something that, that kind of happens gradually over time. So many folks have histories of, of employment, but at the point that they're on the street and they're working with our folks, they're not often engaged in full-time employment. That's not to say that some folks aren't, but generally they're not. Many of the folks that we're working with qualify for disability benefits. So we help people access those disability benefits where they're eligible for it. We also connect people to other benefits that they're eligible for, like public assistance. And those benefits are what are used to pay their rent when we get them into permanent housing, those incomes. And people pay, when they move into supportive housing, they pay no more than 30% of their income, of that benefit income. Okay. And so then your role as breaking ground is making sure that housing that accepts those, I think they're called vouchers and accepts that funding is available? Yes. So we use a variety of when we're moving people from the street into permanent housing. And most of the folks that we're working with on the street do move into permanent supportive housing that has its independent housing that's rent stabilized and they have it, uh, they sign a lease and they have it in perpetuity. But it it also comes with on-site social services support. It's not mandatory or required, but the services are there and available to help folks as they move in and throughout the duration of their tenancy. And we use a variety of different sources or places when we're accessing permanent supportive housing. There are different models. So some units are in congregate settings in one physical building. And there's also scatter site models where there are individual units that are placed kind of throughout different apartment buildings throughout the city. And then services are brought to them in the community. You know, and and each, there are differences between, you know, different providers have different types of buildings and have different population mixes within their buildings or, you know, are located in different parts of the city. So we incorporate as much client and person choice in the housing that we're accessing for people and also based on kind of the eligibility requirements of that housing, which would include things like the voucher eligibility. Some, you know, the supportive housing funding is very complicated in New York City, you know, but there are different eligibility requirements that that come with kind of the way that the buildings are subsidized and built. So I have a lot of questions because of Breaking Ground's <laughs> yeah. developer background. And we hear this conversation about affordable housing all the time, right? It's like sure. front page news constantly. So a couple of questions, and I'm just going to give them all to you at one time. So one, does Breaking Ground do any advocacy work around affordable housing and what you all think the best model is? 
Two, do you believe that affordable housing and these specifically supportive affordable housing should always be managed by a nonprofit entity versus a government or private entity? Like what is the best model to get to replicate what you are doing on a larger scale? Because clearly there's a higher need here. Sure. I think I'll tackle the second part of that first. And that is, you know, we know that supportive housing works. We know that it works. And not only does it work, but it's more affordable than keeping people homeless. It costs about half as much to have somebody in supportive housing as it does to to keep them homeless in terms of what it costs for emergency rooms, inpatient psychiatric stays, jail and shelter use. So we know that it makes sense economically. And we also know that it's a best practice standard. As I mentioned earlier, 98% of the people exiting homelessness who move into our supportive housing units remain stably housed for the long term. So we know that it works. There's just not enough of it. And I think, you know, it's real. It's very complicated. And certainly real estate in New York City, finding the space to build new housing and making all of the financing work is a very complicated thing. So I think finding ways to do more of what we already know works is really important. We don't need to try and reinvent the wheel. That said, I think there's also opportunity to look at, you know, kind of ways to evolve the model and ensure that we're being, you know, inclusive of and not leaving out, you know, special populations, that we have enough units for folks who are aging, you know, and other special populations. I do believe that that nonprofits are very well situated, not just to provide the social services in support of housing, but to be developers and operators as well. So where there are opportunities to ensure that that nonprofits are doing that is a win-win. And then the first part of the question, which I'll have you, oh, advocacy. So yes, breaking ground. We do a lot of advocacy work. We work very closely with the Supportive Housing Network of New York. Our CEO, President and CEO, Brenda Rosen, is the board chair, and we've worked with the network for many, many years. So we are behind and working with the network all the time on various legislative opportunities to help support and advance the development of more supportive housing. Okay, great. I feel like I could stay on that topic for a while, but I did move on to really the second half of our conversation, which is that you are now working with private companies. And so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what this new program and approach is. I believe it's a new program that partners with private companies as well as the city. And that's kind of a new approach that you've recently introduced. Can you share about that? Yeah, we're really excited about this. So we call this Connect to Care, and our Connect to Care program is a privately funded outreach program that builds on the best practices of our street-to-home model, and it allows us to extend our reach and go into places that our city-funded contracts don't allow. For example, bank vestibules, retail spaces, privately owned public plazas, those are all spaces that we really aren't able to get into or aren't able to easily access through our our city-funded contracts. And we're really, really good at engaging people uh, who are experiencing street homelessness and connecting them to services and housing. In fact, we place over 500 people into transitional or permanent housing every year. But if we don't know where they are or we can't get to them, then we can't do this work. So Connect to Care is a really important piece of the puzzle because private contracts allow us to be in these spaces that we otherwise wouldn't have access to. And throughout the years, you know, we have had a few small private outreach contracts with business improvement districts or hospitals, even some library branches. But Connect to Care really took off when we partnered with Macy's in 2018 and in Starbucks in 2021. 
And these initiatives allowed us to go into the Macy's store and into different Starbucks locations and engage with people who were flying under the radar and being, you know, not being served or being underserved by existing outreach programs, you know, and in instances where someone was connected with an outreach program already, our approach with Connect to Care helped to expedite their connection to services and housing. So what we saw over a 12-month period about a year or so ago is that our Connect to Care programs helped people access services and housing three times as fast. We served at least 200 people who were otherwise unknown and not being served by existing programs. And 20% of the overall kind of placements that we made into transitional and permanent housing were as a result of these Connect to Care programs. Another really critical component of Connect to Care is the training and education that we provide for the companies that we contract with. We have a really robust continuum curriculum, rather, that includes foundational information on the causes, size, and scope, and solutions to homelessness. And we offer courses in de-escalation and crisis response, harm reduction, and more. So not only are employees of these companies receiving concrete tools and resources, but they're also broadening their perspectives and deepening their understanding of homelessness, which I think you know, leads to a more compassionate society in general and a sense of personal and collective responsibility for helping to solve the issue. So we're super, super excited now through the Homeless Assistance Fund, which is coordinated by the Partnership for New York City. We have an unprecedented opportunity for the private sector to be a tangible part of this solution. This new initiative, the Homeless Assistance Fund, is an $8 million investment from over 60 companies that will allow us to deploy our Connect to Care program in seven sectors of high density in Midtown Manhattan, downtown Manhattan, and in downtown Brooklyn, where we'll be bringing our services to private and semi-private spaces, in addition to some of the high density public spaces in those areas as well. And we'll have upwards of 90 staff who are going to be a part of this initiative. And they're, we're launching right now. So they're going to be hitting the streets later this month as we launch the program. Wow, that is really, really exciting. So I just want to take a step back and level set on the system before and kind of what you're tapping into to make sure that listeners are truly following. So New York City, and again, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but New York City contracts with organizations like Breaking Ground across the five boroughs to provide outreach services. However, there's a limit to what you're able to do through those city funded contracts, because you cannot enter private spaces, you're Social workers cannot go into a private space like a bank vestibule or a Starbucks under that model. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And so if I'm in a Starbucks and I call 311 for help, you know, you would be limited in what you could do. But through this new program, because you're partnering with these private entities, you are able to gain access and talk to somebody where they are located. And it sounds like in many cases, the people who are going to these private entities and staying there, like the Macy's, for example, were not accessing services because you couldn't reach them. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. So this gap that had existed, you know, we had there, there are a certain kind of cohort of people who kind of, you know, either went kind of flew under the radar of existing programs, or maybe they were known here and there, but the outreach programs might have a hard time following them and following up with them because they would be bouncing in and out of these private or semi-private spaces that they weren't able to go into. Gotcha. And I think something else that's really unique about New York that I have learned is that we have this system where we're able to track people. 
So, you know, if you breaking ground interacts with somebody in Manhattan, and then they go up to the Bronx, and they interact with a different outreach member from a different nonprofit, there's a system of some sort that enables you to know that that's the same person. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's a database, essentially, of when street outreach programs are making contact with people. And it you know, with respect to to confidentiality and privacy, there's limited kind of visibility. But you can see, for example, that the person you're working with in Manhattan was contacted on the subway or was contacted by a team in the Bronx, which allows you to kind of seam services together a bit better and ensure that we don't let anybody fall through the cracks. So, you know, as part of this Connect to Care initiative, we're also working with the city and with other outreach providers in these areas to ensure that there's seamless communication and coordination of care so that we're working in tandem with one another and that we're working side by side to advance the work. It's just so fascinating because we're using technology to break down these silos in order to make sure that, as you said, there's that continuum of care, which I just think is really impressive. So you also mentioned that this new program and this new approach is helping to educate frontline employees who interact with these folks, I'm sure, daily, educate them on what somebody may be experiencing, the best way to approach or interact with somebody experiencing homelessness or maybe mental health issues. Can you talk a little bit more about that training? And is there a way for the average New Yorker to access any of that or to educate themselves on best practices? Absolutely. So we find it to be really important as we're working with these various companies and their employees to both give them some tangible resources and tools. So by way of you know, crisis intervention or de-escalation, if they see a situation that might be, you know, kind of escalating, that they have tangible tools and how to respond and that they know exactly who to call if they do see somebody that's, that needs help and how to access those services. But what's also really important is sort of some of this other foundational information related to the causes of homelessness, the size, the scope, the landscape of homelessness in New York City and what this looks like and what it means and how we got here and the services that are available, as well as helping people have a bit of some visibility into how all of these services and systems work. Because to the average person, if you walk by a person experiencing homelessness on the street and you see them today and then you see them again tomorrow and you see them next week and you see them next month, you may think that that nothing is being done. When actually behind the scenes, there's a lot that's happening, but it doesn't happen overnight. Typically, you know, making the, you know, kind of moving somebody from the street inside can take time. And so this is really helping to inform and kind of demystify what this is all about. And in terms of the general public accessing, well, we'll have to stay tuned for that, Sam. <laughs> we'll see. I am um, right already now, making asks. <laughs> yeah, right, right now, our curriculum is available through these contracts. So with the companies that we're contracting with. Okay, great. So as we wrap up, what is your call to action for listeners and how can they get involved and support the work of Breaking Ground? Yeah. So supportive housing is an idea that was born in New York City. And today the city and state remain the leader nationally in the development of this key resource for people who have struggled to maintain housing on their own. And despite this success, communities across the city continue to say no to supportive housing when projects are proposed in their neighborhoods. So we always encourage folks to make your voice heard in support of these projects wherever they're being developed. We need every neighborhood to say yes and to welcome new supportive housing. Go to your community board meetings, join public hearings, and speak up in support. 
unfortunately, the loudest voices seem to be in opposition these days. And another way to be involved, as I mentioned earlier, is using the 311 system if you see somebody experiencing homelessness in need of services. And you can either call or use the 311 app to ensure that an outreach program is sent. And then, of course, please visit our website, breakingground.org, to learn more about our programs and housing and get the latest news on what we're up to and where we are in the city and find ways to get involved and donate to support our work. And can I ask, are the outreach workers who work with Breaking Ground, are they identifiable in any way like a police officer is? Do they wear anything that... Yeah, we're branded. Yep, we're branded with Breaking Ground logos on our gear. So our city-funded outreach programs all have Breaking Ground gear. You may have seen some of our vehicles driving around the city. I hear particularly in Brooklyn, we're noticed a lot. We, we take up a lot of parking <laughs> in Williamsburg, but we... You'll see our branded vehicles and our staff are branded. And the Connect to Care program, everybody will be wearing bright green, impossible to not see us, shirts with Breaking Ground logos. Is it appropriate, of course, when they're not working with a client, is it appropriate for us to say thank you for what they do? Oh, that would be wonderful. That would be wonderful. They work tirelessly and the work that our our outreach staff do is truly heroic. So that would be wonderful. That's great. And then last question is, if there's anyone listening who's part of a business who maybe is not yet involved with this Connect to Care program, is there a way for them to share more information with their business and potentially get looped in? Sure. I think the best thing would probably be to send an inquiry through our website to our info email address, which is located on our website. And we'll ensure that they that somebody connects with them to give them more information about the program. Great. Well, and I'll also just say uh, to listeners, on orangeyougoing.com, we do feature community board events and meetings. So if you're interested in learning more about how you can stay on top of those, please visit orangeyougoing.com. Amy, thank you so much for your time. This was a really robust conversation. I learned a lot. I'm downloading the 311 app right away. And thank you so much for all that you and your team do. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Get the most of Orange You Going, New York's social impact hub. When you join the Og Squad for free, you receive event notifications curated to your interests. Never miss a change-making event. Aren't you going to be there? Are you hosting a social impact event? Post it for free on orangeyougoing.com to reach the most engaged New Yorkers. When you post with us, we promote it to our email list of nearly 10,000 subscribers across social media and on orangeyougoing.com. Let's engage New Yorkers together.